All right. Well, I'm glad you guys are here. I'm uh, glad to tell everybody that I was teaching so they wouldn't come tonight. That was nice, and I appreciate you guys. Y'all are so sweet. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll dive into First Kings together. I think it's an opportunity to come and teach and just to dig into your word together as we see um, uh, what First Kings has to teach us and show us about um, maybe some ways we, we ought not to live and and we can learn from these these guys who uh, who made mistakes and guys, some people who, who walked with you and what we can learn and apply these these truths to our lives. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so like I said, this is First Kings. We're going to go through this quickly because it is... The entirety of First Kings. So this book, although it's been in the, the Hebrew canon for a really long time, uh, we don't really know. It's, a, it's of uncertain origins. We can't pinpoint who exactly wrote it. We can't pinpoint when exactly it was written. We have some ideas. Uh, tradition believes that uh, Jeremiah is the one who, who wrote it. But again, this cannot be definitively proven. We don't know. Um, and because First Kings does not mention the return from Babylon in 536 B.C. Many scholars believe that it was written sometime between 562 and 536 B.C. And much like First and Second Samuel, First Kings is a story of Israel's leadership, uh, specifically the reigns of its kings. And like several other historical books of the Bible, it shows the failure of the nation's leadership by, uh, in, in order to obey God. So an increase of national prosperity was undermined by a decrease in national spirituality uh, throughout this book. And while Israel grew physically and militarily, they grew weak spiritually through idolatry and just rebellion against God. And so the, the book's organization kind of reflects that contrast. That the first part covers a united kingdom, and in the second part of the book, a divided kingdom. And so the dates uh, of 1 Kings, they range from the death of David, which is about 970 B.C., so that's what the, the first part of the book takes place, to the reign of Ahaziah of Judah, which is 841 B.C., it's about 130-year span within 1 Kings. Uh, the book chronicles a history of amazing heights of wealth and prestige under Solomon and the weakness, uh, the poor leadership, and the vision that followed uh, his reign. And Solomon was the, the mastermind behind the construction of the temple. I don't know if you, I played the video. I didn't, I didn't want to take up time to play the video. If you want to watch later, I can always replay it. But I had a video playing of the, of what the temple could have looked like. Of course, we don't know for certain. I mean, we have the, the plans and stuff, but this is just an artist's rendering. And he was the, Solomon was the mastermind behind the temple, which was dedicated to the, to the Lord and housed, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, early rabbinical references state that the temple lasted for 140 years. Uh, Josephus, that first century historian, he actually said it this way. The temple was burnt um, 470 years, 6 months, and 10 days after it was built, which is oddly specific to that. Kind of a timeline review so you guys can understand where we are in this. Uh, Saul lived between 1050 and 1010 B.C. David, 1010 to 970. Solomon... Well, this is when they reigned, I guess. Uh, Solomon, 970 to 930 B.C. You have the division after Solomon died there in 930 B.C. The fall of Samaria, the northern kingdom, at 722 B.C. And then lastly, the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So there's kind of a quick uh, timeline for you guys. And so here's um, kind of the, uh, 
an outline we're going to kind of follow tonight. And so you can kind of see the different parts. You have the United Kingdom. We're going to look at those four sections. And then we'll have the divided kingdom. We'll look at those three. And because I'm Baptist, I have to do some like, they often start with the same letter um, for you guys. So you have an exacting end, an enlightened decision, excellent achievements, early warning. And then you have moral failures, massive division, and monstrous monarch versus a man of God. So let's look at this outline now uh, and in a little bit greater detail. So the United Kingdom is from chapter 1 through chapter 11 of 1 Kings. And the end of David's life was not tranquil or, or peaceful by any means. He seems to have had all sorts of problems growing older from needing nursing care uh, to experiencing a touch of um, salinity, forgetting his promises and some of his con contracts um, and managing a rebellion in his own household. He had to deal with that. He's about 70 years old at this point, is what 2 Samuel 5.4 tells us. But those were a hard-lived 70 years. David was just, he was burned out. And everything he had faced, everything he had done, from shepherding to living on the run to soldiering, had taken its toll on this 70-year-old man, which, I mean, that makes sense. Look at his life. makes sense that he's, you know, had a hard life here and he's kind of taking it hard at 70. And to top it off, he also had to deal with his fourth son, Adonijah, who took advantage of his father's infirmity to declare himself the new king. Adonijah was Absalom's brother, and also good-looking, and also apparently just embittered by his dad's failure to confront or to discipline his children. And so an approach that had resulted in the deaths of two of his sons, Amnon and Absalom. And if Solomon hadn't been merciful, this bitterness would have contributed to Adonijah's demise. Although Adonijah crossed Solomon later, and he eventually paid for it uh, with his own life. So David commanded a nation, but he couldn't even take care of his own house. And then you, know, you had a, a failed coup that forced David to repeat this, uh, his promise that Solomon would inherit the throne. It's like, hey, it's not going to be Adonijah, it's going to be Solomon. He's the one who is the rightful heir to my throne. His wife... Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan seemed to have to remind him, but once they did, David not only confirmed his promise, but moved to expedite it. This is 1 Kings 1, 24 uh, through 35. Before David died, he took Solomon aside, gave him some prevailing instructions regarding some necessary political, you know, house cleaning kind of thing. David's cabinet of leaders served him in Israel well, by and large, um, uh, but they could have posed potential problems for the young um, inexperienced Solomon. Now, David knew how to handle loose cannons like Joab, his military commander. Uh, but it was payback time for Shammai, a relative of Saul's who had cursed David during Absalom's revolt. So David did all he could to kind of smooth this over and smooth his, his son's path to the throne. So then Solomon ascended to the throne without further controversy. David died shortly afterward. His obituary was short and sweet. This is 1 Kings 2, 10-11. It says, So David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he, raised, he reigned in Hebron, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. There's his obituary. David's life was over, but his legacy was just beginning. Of course, we know that's a lot bigger than just that. God had future plans for the throne of King David, including the end times reign of his distant relative, Israel's future Messiah, Jesus Christ, right? 
So now we come to an enlightened decision. David has passed. Solomon is now in control. So God, he firmly established Solomon's reign, not least because Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David. That's 3 verse 3. Uh, one evening at a local worship center called Gibeon, Solomon sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings to the Lord. And that night, God came to him in a dream and basically gave him a blank check. He's like, hey, ask, what shall I give you? And it was like this ultimate winning lottery ticket, right? God is telling, telling him, hey, ask whatever you want. That's going to be yours. You know, not without pressure, right? That's some pressure behind this. After all, Solomon, he could ask for anything that he wanted to. But this was, this was God making the offer, right? So Solomon needed to give a good answer, not just one that's just on, on impulse. And he was excited to be king, but the weight of having responsibility over his dad's kingdom was starting to kind of sink in at this point. He kind of saw what happened to his dad and how he kind of came later on in life. So he knew, to, he knew that he needed to handle people to make decisions to expand the kingdom uh, and, and build a temple that David had kind of planned, right? In short, he just needed God's wisdom. So Solomon prayed hard and he prayed well. In verse 9 of chapter 3, Give to your servant an understanding heart, literally a, a hearing heart, to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? So Solomon wanted to hear God's voice advising him on how to rule, to make decisions that reflected what God was saying about them as his people. So, that, so God gave Solomon his request, you know, a divine thumbs up, if you will, and committing him for not asking for a long life or for wealth or for all those kinds of things that we, can, we would probably think of. He gave him not only great wisdom, but he, then he gave him the wealth and the honor and respect. In verse 29, chapter 4, it says, A largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. In other words, he had the best possible combo that a leader could ask for, the perfect balance, a brainy mind and a big compassionate heart. So that's kind of where we see this enlightened decision from Solomon. Then we go to some excellent achievements from him. Solomon's gifts were put to good use. He built the temple for God. He created infrastructure in Jerusalem, new streets, public buildings. He expanded Israel's borders and presided over a court that attracted curious kings and queens from all over the world. He composed 1,005 songs, wrote 3,000 proverbs, along with portions or whole books of the Bible, uh, parts of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. And his reputation was just unimpeachable among both scholars and rulers. They just love to come and hear this man talk. And one of his greatest achievements was building Jerusalem's first temple for the worship of the one true God. According to a parallel account in First Chronicles 28, David had already kind of drawn up the plans, the designs of the structure, but God didn't allow David to build it. So he passed the blueprints off to his son Solomon. Solomon took to the task with God, so he was excited to do this. First, in, his, in the wisdom that God gave him, he, he formed a partnership with a family friend, Hiram. He was king of Tyre up in Lebanon uh, along the Mediterranean coast. Lebanon was famous for its abundance of cedar wood, and Solomon and Hiram agreed on an exchange of Israel's wheat and olive oil for Lebanese lumber and then experienced woodworkers. Tens of thousands of people worked on the project, going to and from Lebanon, 
carrying supplies, quarrying stone in the mountains, supervising the work itself. There were about 183,000 people working on this thing. It's a lot of people. And the Temple of Solomon represents the very pinnacle of his glory. It became the heart of Judaism and Jewish social life. Their scholars commented that the temple was the epicenter of God's plan and program here on earth. Solomon's temple was twice the dimensions of the tabernacle. You know, I always envisioned this temple to be like some grand, massive building structure thing. It was roughly 2,700 square feet. Some of you may live in houses bigger than the temple was. You know, relatively small compared to other buildings of, of similar renown back in this day. But it was astonishing. It was made with the finest cedar in Cyprus with limestone. It was overlaid with gold. This is all from 1 Kings chapter 6. All the stone was cut at the quarry so that no human hammers were heard on site during construction. And the stones were fitted together with such precision that um, it's said that not even a knife blade could fit between the stones. Just remarkable. The temple took seven years to construct. And the value of materials and labor, including stonework, woodwork, gold, silver, brass, embroidery, implements, musical instruments, all those things would today doubtless add up to billions of dollars. And when the work was finished, the dedication began. And Solomon filled the treasury with silver and gold that David had dedicated for that specific purpose. He brought temple furnishings and implements into the courtyard and the inner rooms. He had the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies. Accompanied by a massive number of animal sacrifices. And once it was all done, God showed up. Right in a huge cloud of Shekinah glory. It filled the temple so much that the priests couldn't see and actually had to vacate the premises because God's presence was so overwhelming. And this is 1 Kings 8, 10-11 is where that was happening. God's glory just filled the temple so much that they couldn't even be in there. That presence and that smoke was there. They had to leave the temple. But then we have an early warning. Solomon demonstrated wisdom with people and with God, but as you and I know, nobody's perfect, right? One of Solomon's far-reaching problems was money management. He was a tax-and-spend king. He overtaxed, he overburdened the people. Uh, a key factor in what would eventually become the split of the kingdoms his palace took twice as long as the temple took to be built. And it was far larger than the temple. He himself lived in glory and splendor on a yearly wage of 25 tons of gold. I'm going to say that again. 25 tons of gold was this man's salary that he decided to give himself. It's good to be the king, right? It's described as 666 talents of gold. 666 talents of gold in 1 Kings 10, verse 14. I'm sure Mark's thinking of something there from this class he's been taking. It's a fascinating number, seen only one at a time in the entire Bible, right? In Re Revelation 13, 18. We read of another overbearing ruler in Jerusalem associated with the number 666. It's as if Solomon's father David became a type of Christ, while Solomon himself became a type of the Antichrist. I'm not saying he is, but it became a type of the Antichrist. I wonder how well Solomon knew the book of, of Deuteronomy. It required that every king of Israel would actually write out his own copy of the Law of Moses. Like he would handwrite the entire Torah. 
an attempt to guarantee his familiarity with God's statutes and laws. Given Solomon's repute as a wise man, it seems that he would have been familiar with such stipulations as the king should not multiply horses for himself. That's Deuteronomy 17, 16. But 1 Kings 4, 26 says Solomon had famous stables all over Israel. 40,000 of them. That's a big number. The law also said in Deuteronomy 17, 17, that the king should multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. 1 Kings 11, 3, um, you'd imagine that commandment was no doubt debated among his 700 wives and 300 concubines that he had. Verse 3, 1 Kings 11, 3 says, as his wives turned away from his heart. The law continued in, in 1717. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself, but his 666 gold talents a year salary kind of broke that commandment as well. Solomon's shortcomings set the stage for a very disastrous result. This is where we get into the divided kingdom in chapters 12 through 22. In chapters 5 through 10, we read about all the great and marvelous things that Solomon did and said. However, when we get to chapter 11, it says this, But King Solomon, it's never a good way to start out a sentence, which is never a sign of just good things to come, right? It sets up the contrast of a series of pending failures, because you have like case study A, right? But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. That's verse 1. Beyond the obvious issue of the challenges of being married to more than one woman, right? That just doesn't sound like a lot of fun. God had long commanded the children of Israel not to intermarry with foreign tribes because, verse 2 says, they will turn away your hearts after their gods. That's exactly what happened with Solomon. They divided his heart, which then divided the nation. That was his legacy. He wrote much of the book of Proverbs, but he should have read and followed his own advice. Because all the wisdom in the world means nothing without a godly moral compass. You mean the smartest person in the room, the smartest person in the world, but if you don't have a godly moral compass, it's not going to take you anywhere. Solomon fell offering sacrifices and building altars to false gods, even though God had personally appeared to this dude twice. So God punished him for his offense. God told Solomon in 1 Kings 11, 11, but not through a prophet, but through a direct revelation, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you, and give it to your servant. That's 1 Kings 11, 11. The Lord honored his covenant with David, right? Telling Solomon that he would give one tribe to Solomon's son for David and Jerusalem's sakes. That covenant that he made with David. So that Solomon spent the rest of his reign fighting foreign foes and resisting local rebellions. And when he died, his throne went to his son, uh, Rehoboam. But the rest was lost to political rivals. So then we have this big massive division here. After Solomon, the kingdom was divided between two men, each of whom would form a lineage of kings that we would see the rest of this book and in Second Kings. And Jeroboam, the son of uh, Naboth from up north, he ruled the ten northern tribes of Israel. And then Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, ruled in Judah. And Rehoboam didn't start, even he didn't even start out right, as his father started out right. Solomon at least began with a prayer meeting, seeking God for his wisdom. Rehoboam, he just ignored everyone but his, his yes-men, his bros from high school. 
That's kind of what he did. Who were either wise because they're young and stupid. I'm a youth pastor. I know these things. Not just a bunch of yes men. They, they, that's who he was asking and seeking advice from. Before the nation split, Jeroboam came to Rehoboam and asked him to lower the taxes, which had just been heavy again. Remember under Solomon, he taxed heavy. And the very inexperienced Rehoboam told him to come back in three days so he could think about it. Hey, let me, let me think about it. Let me talk to some people and then I'll come back. Come back and I'll tell you what my answer is. When he consulted his older advisors, those that worked with Solomon, they said, hey, you may want to ease up on the taxes. All right, This may be good for you. Rehoboam's high school buddies, however, told him to ratchet them up even higher levels than they had been under Solomon. This is 12, 6 through 11. He followed his dumb friend's lead, thinking he would control the nation by force. Jeroboam returned after three days, heard about Rehoboam's new plan, and said, All right, forget you. He won the allegiance of every tribe, but Judah set himself up as king of the north. That's how this split happened here. From here on out, there were two countries, two kingdoms, ten tribes in the north calling themselves Israel, two tribes in the south calling themselves Judah. And Rehoboam was, he was smart enough to say, though, in Jerusalem, because he knew that the emotional heart of Israel was still that newly built temple. No matter if they're part of the Israel kingdom up north, people would still feel the pull to return to the temple to worship God. Jeroboam quickly realized the same thing and devised an obvious but misguided solution. He said, I'll put up two new sites of worship in the north, one at Bethel in the center of the country and one at Dan in the most northern part of the country. We'll have a priesthood and a temple and we'll have false gods and goddesses and a whole idolatry system and everything. It's going to be fantastic. Everything but the one true God, that is, is what he's going to establish. And the rest of the book is really just a pathetic running parallel account of these two kingdoms and their respective kings. Eight kings in the north and four kings in the south, all of whom uh, were also mentioned again in the book of First and Second Chronicles. The rest of First Kings kind of gets kind of confusing with the narrative bouncing both between the northern kingdom and southern kingdom and trying to keep them on track. The two consistencies are that the two sides fought each other regularly. And all of Israel's kings in the north were horrible. They were rotten leaders. They were spiritual apostates. The eight kings of Israel in the north, they were Jeroboam, uh, Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, Ahab, and Ahaziah. And all of them were idolaters and pagan worshippers. And in the southern kingdom of Judah, the kings were Rehoboam, Abijam, Asa, and Jehoshaphat. Only the last two did right in God's eyes. Then we have some cool stories kind of creeping up here in chapter 16. A monstrous monarch versus a man of God. In 1 Kings 16, 30-33, there's one northern king in particular who just stood out as the worst of the worst. His name was Ahab. He married a witchy woman. I don't want to sing that song for you. You're welcome. Her name was Jezebel, whose name had become, has, even now, has become synonymous with evil. And Jezebel was a princess from Sidonia who brought Baal worship into the highest level of Israel's government. It just got really bad, which is usually when kind of God enacts a really good plan. He sent in a prophet named Elijah, who was articulate, 
fiery, pun completely intended, and uncompromising. And so chapter 17 through 22 records a conflict between the man of God, Elijah, and the man of the world, King Ahab. <coughs> because Elijah was a miracle worker. Eight miracles are mentioned in this book by Elijah. When we first meet him, he suspended the reins for three and a half years, like West Texas, as a message from God that Israel was off track. This is 1 Kings 17, verse 1. He also built his resume as a man of God by making a poor widow's oil and flour last during the whole three and a half year drought. He brought the same woman's son back to life. Nobody seems excited about that. That's cool. Somebody was dead, now they're alive. It's kind of a big deal. That's not a bad start for this prophet named Elijah. Then God then sent Elijah to visit Ahab, who was already upset with Elijah for stopping the rains. And I'm sure Elijah was super excited about going and seeing this guy who's not a very nice person, who's mad at him, right? You can tell he's probably just super excited to go talk to King Ahab. Suspending the rain was humiliating to Baal worshippers because they believed that seasonal rains were a sign of Baal's favor for them. So when it didn't rain for more than three years, despite their many prayers to Baal, they were just awfully embarrassed. That was a good thing because it brought about a confrontation. So with 1 Kings 18, 17, Ahab's greeting... I love it. it. suggests a conflict was already brewing. Is that you, O troubler of Israel? That's, what, that's how Ahab greeted Elijah. Elijah's response clarified things for him. I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. That's verse 18. He didn't mess around with the pleasantries, but he proposed a showdown at Mount Carmel of all of Baal and Asherah's prophets, 850 in total, against God's one prophet, him. So Elijah's head up the stakes, right? We kind of know this story. If God wins, you're going to follow him. If Baal wins, follow him. He then laid out the rules. One bull each, cut up, placed on wood, no fire. It says, then you guys bring all of your prayers and crazy incantations to call down fire from Baal to consume it. Baal's prophets called on him all morning with a, just a growing frenzy as time passed by. Eventually just hopping and leaping all around the altar, acting like a fool, but to no avail. And then around noon, Elijah, I love this part, Elijah's giving him a hard time, like, hey, how come he's not answering? Maybe he's using the bathroom. You need to go check on him. I, I, that's fantastic. I love that. He might be sleeping. Maybe you need to, you know, be a louder alarm clock for him and wake him up. So then Bell's boys, they just cried out more rage. And they began to cut themselves, a customary practice, um, apparently designed to get a false god out of the outhouse and back on the playing field, I guess. And no, no, there's no answer. Because we know that to be true. By evening, they had exhausted themselves. No doubt collapsing just in a bloody heap near the altar. Remember, 850 of these guys. At that point, the supposed showdown became a one-way throwdown with Elijah. He stepped up, he built an altar of 12 stones, and he dug a trench around it. He piled up his wood, he killed and cut up the bull, placed the pieces, and then told the attendants, Hey, see those four pots of water? Fill them up with water. Or those four pots, put them in water, pour it all over everything. Okay, do it one more time. Okay, do it one more time. All right, one last time. So 16 pots of water have been poured over everything, the wood, the altar, the, the bull, and it filled the trench around it. It was soaked. Elijah then offered a simple short prayer, which ended with this in, verse, in 1837. O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God. 
and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And whoosh, fire fell from heaven, completely burned every cut of beef, every drop of water. People completely panicked, running like rats from a sinking ship. They shouted in terror, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God, is what verse 39 says. Glad that all the prophets of Baal rounded up and executed. Probably not hard because they were half dead already from cutting themselves. He then turned to Ahab and said, Go have a party. You got your rain back. Moments later, a huge black cloud rolled up and drenched the thirsty earth that was around them. Ahab was so upset, he went like a good man, told his wife about what Elijah had done to him. Jezebel threatened to kill Elijah, who then fled to the wilderness in chapter 19. Whatever momentum Elijah thought that he had gained in Mount Carmel quickly evaporated, became depressed. I don't know if I thought of sheer exhaustion, whatever it may be. Cowering at Mount Sinai, this great prophet was feeling so low that he actually wanted to die. He cried out, God, take my life. And then he fell asleep. Then God sent him an angel that woke him and baked him some bread. So never underestimate the spiritual power that is a good nap and a snack. Okay? That's good for you. We tend to become kind of self-centered when we suffer, right? And with Elijah, God started with a gentle reminder that the solution, it wasn't physical death, but in dying to self. And once God took care of Elijah's need to be nurtured and heard, he got, <clears throat> he got Elijah's attention with a reminder in 1918. I reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal. Like, hey, what you're doing is not in vain. There are people like you who still love and worship me. So he sent his wounded prophet to find them and continue in the work that he had for him. Elijah turned to the battle, setting up for God against Ahab and others, a necessary force for good in a nation that needed it desperately. All right, so what are some things that we can learn? That's kind of the book of First Kings, very quickly. Um... Like the books of Samuel, First Kings, it emphasizes the sovereignty of God, that God's God's total control over our events. No matter what we try to do or say, God's going to be in control, and what He wants is going to happen. But then he also the call to obey God's word is loud and clear. Obedience <coughs> brought God's blessing. Turning from God obviously brought God's wrath, and God's wrath it wasn't quick. And no one, no one person's disobedience brought on God's punishment. It wasn't because of one person. It was repetitive, a continual pattern of rejection and disobedience that brought about the destruction of both nations. Because I believe God was willing to forgive. I don't think anybody was asking. God was willing to forgive, but no one was asking. And the book of 1 Kings further establishes what we already know, that we live in a very chaotic world, and any time human wisdom tries to replace God's sovereign wisdom, there will be trouble. We see this with Solomon in chapter 4, verse 29. It says he had that largeness of heart to go with his famous wisdom. He was wise and compassionate. Remember that great combination for any leader. But wisdom only lasts so long as you keep it in front of you. Despite his wisdom and his generosity, Solomon broke almost all of God's commands for kings laid out in Deuteronomy. He had like a checklist. He's like, okay, I haven't done this one yet. Let me go do this one, right? That's almost what he was like. And from limitations on horses and women uh, to his own palace, all these things. He overtaxed his people and spent the funds lavishly and primarily on himself. 
And what gets lost in all those projects and weddings was his time spent in God's Word. Remember, he was to write out the entire copy of the law. Every great man and woman of God, they hit low points in life, right? Right? Can we say that? We hit, we hit low points. Elijah should have enjoyed the victory of God. God gave him over the prophets of Baal, right? Instead, he became discouraged. He tucked tail and ran. Despite seeing the overwhelming power of God there on the mountain, he heard Jezebel was coming for him, and he, he ran. You know, God is there when you can't see beyond your pain or beyond your circumstances. And especially when your darkest hour, God is there. So then how can maybe we see Jesus in the gospel in this book? Solomon's greatest achievement, I believe, was the temple. It was a visible, tangible place in the center of the nation where God's people could visit and they could know that he was present with them. But this, of course, was the foreshadowing of a much greater temple to come, the body of the believer. Because God's presence took on a new form, the incarnation of Christ. Jesus, Emmanuel, right? God became flesh, like John 1.14 says. And after his resurrection and ascension, God's presence changed Yet again, the Apostle Paul, preaching among the temples of the Areopagus in Athens, alluded to this truth when he said in Acts 7.48, um, The Most High does not dwell in temples, not 7, that's not right. Um, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. If you're a believer, God dwells within you. That's 1 Corinthians 3.16. Not, not in man-made temples, but in the people who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And a more important illustration of redemption is this. Solomon, he was the son of David, who brought a level of glory previously unknown to the nation of Israel. However, Jesus, the greater son of David, would far outshine Solomon in both wisdom and glory. He came as one greater than Solomon, is what Matthew twelve forty two says. And that greatness would be demonstrated by a sacrificial atonement on the cross. and will be demonstrated to the world in his earthly uh, millennial reign. And that's it. That's what I got for... First Kings, you guys have any thoughts, questions? Hope not. I don't want to answer any. I'm just kidding. Any thoughts, questions, interpretive dances, soliloquies, anything? Wow, I taught it that good that you have no questions. Fantastic. I love it. Yep.